Hello and welcome to Plot Trist. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing Mission Improper by Beck McMaster. This was published in 2019 and is the first book in the London steampunk colon The Blue Blood Conspiracy series. Yes, yeah, so we we read the London the London Steampunk series about a year ago. And we really liked it. And we're like, you know what? Let's go back to it. She published like a companion series that takes place three years later. And it's the Blue Blood Conspiracy series. Okay. I'm going to ask this because we talked about this sort of, but not actually. Did I miss anything? Are there any books in this series that I haven't read or that we haven't reviewed on the podcast? Okay. There is one novella that we have not read for the podcast. It was a prequel novella about Perry and Garrett. Okay. But you are 100% right. It feels like there should have been a novella. It should have been a prequel or there should have been a different prologue. There should have been something that we got before this book. I agree with you. Um, yeah, so there's a couple of things. Just before we get into the jacket, this book is primarily about Caleb Barnes, who was a secondary tertiary character in the original London Steampunk series. There are a few <laughs> there are a few other characters that you'll recognize as well who pop up as members of this elite crime investigation squad. Uh-huh. But there are flashbacks to a case our two protagonists worked on together, a mission in Russia that one of the good guys and one of the bad guys in this book was on, were on. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in general, some allusions to forced marriages and the internal politicking that's happened amongst the council post this, the last book that like, I, if you told me we'd skipped a series that you were like, Hey, there was this trilogy. It primarily covered council shit and rape and figured you'd hate it. So we skipped it. I totally believe you. Like, I felt like there was huge stuff, not just between the main characters, because I agree with you, that would have been more like a novella. But in terms of where the world is at, I feel like there are huge chunks missing. Totally. I mean, she it's basically like three years after the revolution, and it really feels like three years worth of shit has happened, and we don't know what it is. And that's more the problem. You know, sometimes you'll get the book where three years later and all you're really missing is like boring. We've put into plan the vision that we all discussed and now we're here and you don't really feel like you missed much. Right. I found parts of this book extremely hard to follow. But so if we start talking about like the Russia thing or the, what was it? Drury Lane case. Yep. You didn't miss something. Nope. It's, it just was never in a book. Correct. Yeah, I I literally, because I was like, you know what, if there was something, I bought this whole series because I I just loved it, you know, the the whole thing is just great, so I was like, yeah, I'll buy it. Um, I was like, do I need to subscribe to her newsletter so that I can download, like, the the missing piece? No, like, I don't, I really, she just didn't write it. I'm interested to know if this is the sort of thing where you're going to get the entirety of the Drury Lane case or the engagement story or the Russia story in subsequent books. I think the answer to some of those might be less, but yes, but Drury Lane in particular, I don't think there's any, there would be reason to bring up again. It really was just a Burns and Ingrid thing. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so part of the reason we didn't review the Perry Garrett novella was because it really was just a little bit more character development. It was a case that they worked together, but it was pre-romance. So I didn't feel that it added much. Like, it was nice. If you really like Perry and Garrett, you can read. It's called The Clockwork Menace. But it didn't really add much to the series. And we didn't feel like it was missing. Here, I was like, what happened to the Drury Lane case? We don't know. And, yeah, there's just, there's a lot. So just a heads up, you aren't missing anything. You didn't skip anything. And if you're confused by stuff we're talking about in this episode, welcome to the club. Yeah. Let's get to the jacket. Entire families have gone missing in the East End. When Caleb Burns receives an invitation to join the company of rogues as an undercover agent pledged to protect the crown, he jumps at the chance to find out who or what is behind the disappearances. Hunting criminals is what the darkly driven blue blood does best. And though he prefers to work alone, the opportunity is too good to resist. The problem, he's partnered with Ingrid Miller, the fiery and passionate Verwolfen woman who won a private bet against him a year ago. Burns has a score to settle, but one stolen kiss, and suddenly the killer is not the only thing Burns is interested in hunting. Soon they're chasing whispered rumors of a secret project gone wrong and a monster that might and a monster that just might be more dangerous than either of them combined. The only way to find out more is to go undercover among the Blue Blood elite. But when their hunt uncovers a mysterious conspiracy, Burns and Ingrid must set aside their age-old rivalry if they have any chance at surviving a treacherous plot. I don't hate this book jacket except for two things. One that we say every single time that we review a London Steampunk book, which is that it does not define what a blue blood is. If you're picking this book up for the first time and you're not familiar with her series, you're not going to know that this is a vampire werewolf steampunk book. Correct. And then the other thing I don't like is the their age-old rivalry. Oh, like They've known each other for like a year. Right. <laughs> I also, okay, this is just a, a very minor quibble compared to the two you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. They both primarily call each other by their last names mm-hmm. in the book. So I just think it's weird that the choice is mostly to call her Ingrid and him Burns. It's true. Instead of them both Miller and Burns or them Ingrid and Caleb. Like, I kind of just want to ask, like, why? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I'm wondering if it's because in previous books where both of these characters appeared, Ingrid was called Ingrid and he was called Burns. So maybe if you're a fan of the series, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember Burns. I remember Ingrid. Okay, that's a, that's a fair point. It's just in the way their names are used in this book and the way they use them with each other. The cross, the choice not being consistent between the two of them does not make sense within this book. No, I I totally agree. Okay, fair. So as usual, we generated a random number between 1 and 50 and wrote our own summaries using that word number as a word count. And this episode, that number was 35. Meg, take it away. Here comes, here's my 35 word summary. We're back in London after the vampire revolution that brought down the government and we're excited. This is a messy book that sets up a lot, but doesn't give Ingrid and Burns enough time. All right, we went with similar themes, but in a different way. Mine. 
I completely and totally bought Ingrid and Caleb as super destined and too hot to handle, but the baby crazies combined with 75 billion extraneous subplots made this more made this more set up than a romance. All right. So we do have some tropes. I I don't we have some tropes. Um I think the big one is sort of enemies to lovers, but combined with the sort of Second chance romance, sort of? I mean, I would... I think if you just zoom out, this is partners with a will-they-won't-they. They. Oh, yeah. This is every crime show ever. Like, the main romance trope here, which, yeah, they've got some animosity, but also want to bang each other, so I guess you can call that enemies to lovers. Second chance romance, they, like, have a past. This is every hot cop pairing from every show ever who bring out the best and worst in each other. Yeah. And I love that she's a werewolf and he's a vampire. Duh. Duh. <laughs> like, I love it. Fucking love it. Historical romance trope. He is the bastard son of a nobleman. Who has 100 billion daddy issues. So many daddy issues. Also brother issues. You know, his brother was the heir, the legitimate heir. Mm -hmm. So I kind of really liked that relationship. We'll talk about it more. I thought it was, I liked what she did with it. I liked what she did with it. There are certain things I wish had not been on the page. Fair. And Uh, this is kind of a faded mates. I mean, in the way that all these books are. Like, it's not so much that there's, there's no talk of, like, destiny, and there's no one, this isn't Blue, Ice Planet, Planet Barbarian, Sentient Dildo, whatever that series is technically called. Ice Planet Barbarians. Okay, thanks. I stand by what I said. (laughs) The, like, it's more of a, once you're actually with someone, when you're truly in love with them, your innate inner monster yeah. lays claim to them as well. It's not like some preordained, preternatural, oh man, really? Destiny wants me with this person? Yes. So like, it's it's sort of in the hazy middle ground. Yes. I personally prefer the way Bick McMaster does it with the, you know, my my inner beast, the dark side has, has claimed this person. And I, I liked the conversations they had about it here too. What's also fun is like, at least the vamp- vampiric, like, I'm super in love with you. It's never been officially described that it happens, like, only once in a lifetime. True. It's just that, like, if you're truly in love and truly obsessed, this is, like, a natural thing that happens. Yeah. Werewolves are kind of implied to be a little more wait- mate for life in this one. Well, they were in the in Will's book, too, remember? Right, but they're, it, this book doesn't have the, like, craving side. Like, Ingrid right. doesn't feel her inner werewolf wanting Caleb. It's true. It's just that they're like those penguins. Yeah, well, don't, maybe I'm wrong. Don't wolves mate for life? Let me check. I'm going to verify that. I think they, like, are monogamous, but I don't think if your partner dies, you'll never find another one. Gray, gray wolves are monogamous, often mating for life. Yeah, so. I, think, I think wolves are monogamous, but I don't think the, like, if their mate dies, they are basically desolate and alone forever is accurate. Yeah. We're, I'm also attributing a lot to wolves here. <laughs> I mean, it's true. The verwolfen are werewolves, but they're, they're not werewolves. They don't change, you know, they're, nothing's linked to the moon. 
There's no physical transformation during the full moon. Right. Like there's a physical transformation at the moment they're turned if they are turned and not genetic, but it's not like they become a wolf. No. And they're, I, both of them. So both vampires and werewolves are created through a virus in Beckman Masters world. So just Mm -hmm. to remind you of that, if you're not familiar. Um, and, they so can't, all the- and they can't infect each other, which is kind right. of, yeah. Okay. Um, so I think a lot of my other tropes that I identified are either just romance specific more than historical specifics. So one, they make a lot of sex bets in this play. In this book, they're called challenges. And some of them aren't explicitly sexual in nature, but they all end up being like, okay, you get rewarded by like my respect, but also make outs. Loved it. I love a sex bet. Yeah. There's a near-death feelings revelation. Mm-hmm. Actually, kind yeah. of several. Several. Several, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, if there's always... I feel like in a paranormal romance, it ha- you have to push up. You have to push it up to 11. So, like, there's a near-death experience, feelings revelation. And then there's an even more near... Even closer-to-death experience. <laughs> yes. It was great. Look, there are some things in this book that that I kind of (laughs) loved. They do break up with each other because they want different things in life. But it's more than like also, if this goes badly, we will ruin each other's lives. So like best to end it before we're bad for each other. Yeah. It lasts all of a page, but it was, I've seen that break up in a billion and one romance novels. Yeah, it was a... I will say I was frustrated, but then I was like, just like you said, it was over quickly. So I was like, okay, okay, fine. Um, And the next two, I think, are just like paranormal or cop tropes. One, of course, somebody has to be bait. Of course. And they actually, there's one scene in particular where they use that terminology, but both of them use themselves as bait at different points in the book. Yes, they do. I will say that one of the psychotic villains, so for a, you know, a, a cop movie trope, right? The psychotic serial killer who fixates on a person, fixates on him and not yes. on her, which I, I did like as a sort of mini reversal of that trope. Agree. So, And then I think one of the things, and we haven't read any supernatural series long enough on this podcast for it to come up. Whenever there's a long running sci-fi fantasy like these supernatural being type series inevitably at some point a character that's like a next level of badass or a next level of powerful has to be introduced Mm -hmm. and this is the book that does that like oh everybody's a super strong werewolf and vampire that's been going on for five books and is now kind of boring what's the next thing we can do to make one that's even more powerful yeah i mean there to be fair to big master there were hints of it in the fifth book the previous oh, book in the series. I don't say that as a criticism at all. Yeah. But like leveling up the badass, the stakes getting higher and higher are just, it's kind of an inevitable side effect mm-hmm. of writing in this genre. Like you can only, your characters would be totally invul- invulnerable if you didn't find a new way to injure them. And often when they're supernatural, the only way to injure them is a more powerful supernatural being. Yeah. 
Right. Let's talk about the book a little bit. I think one of the things, I know one of the things I liked about the original series, um, I think you did too, was how it talked about power and privilege in terms of like, so blue bloods are not only aristocrats, they're also vampires, right? They Mm -hmm. literally prey on the downtrodden. If there's not a, oh, I'm exploiting your labor, it's, oh, I'm, I'm actually exploiting, I'm actually living off of your body, right? Some would say that's what labor is. It's true. But this, you know, this is, it's obviously a metaphor taken to it, <laughs> which I love, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> Are we a little punchy tonight? <laughs> So the denouement of the whole series, and so FYI, spoilers for the London Steampunk series, if you haven't read it, probably don't want to be listening to this specific episode yet. Uh, But one of the things uh, that the previous series did was really bring down, or at least attempt to bring down that whole system, right? Mm -hmm. And here, one of the things I liked is how she's using those people who used to be in a position of privilege to what they're trying to do is get, is get, get it back. Right. Right. And the ways they're doing it are, it turns out maybe not so organized, but what they're, the way that they're attracting people to their movement is by having parties the way they used to treating humans the way they used to. I don't know. I just thought it was, it's very topical. To see, mm-hmm. right, a group where we make strides towards equality and then those people who feel that they lost something are going to fight even harder to get it back. Yeah, I think what's interesting here, just to like even further delve into the thematic elements, the overall, what, what you think is going to be the overall link within this series is the Duke of Maluin, Maluin. Malloran, thank you. The Duke of Malloran, um, who was a major player in the politics of the first series, is assembling sort of a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen style, like the best spies of all the different types of spies mm-hmm. to help get to the bottom of this, which is really fun. But you get the impression that all the different spies are going to have their love story in the course of this. Of course. And at first I was like, oh, well, there's only going to be like three books because they're all going to, it'll be like incestuous kind of, right? The Company of Rogues is all going to fall in love with the Company of Rogues. No. Well, that's even clear from this book because like Charlie, um, the little brother of the two of the sisters who were protagonists in the first series, has been in love with a girl who's not in the Company of Rogues since the first series. That's clearly going to happen. One of the people is clearly in love with the enemy from Russia, who's the enemy again. And you're like, I actually can't follow what the fuck is going on here. Sleeping with the enemy. Sure. I don't understand what happened in this book, though. (laughs) Between the two of them. No, I don't think you're supposed to understand. Anyway. But yes, so I think the, like, this is sort of a, it's not about a heist, but it sort of feels like a heist book. It does. Like a Six of Pros, Ocean's Eleven, like let's get the biggest, like the best minds to solve but, this problem that only people with a unique set of skills can solve. But it is not a heist. It feels like a heist setup, but there's no heist payoff. And so in that way, 
because these individuals are in this like really exceptional and elite circumstance, the personal way which they interact with being downtrodden, oppressed, overthrowing the monarchy, participating in the monarchy is a lot less explicit. It's not the, because it's not like it's subtle, but it's, I think, less of a narrative driving force. Yeah, absolutely. But it doesn't mean it's been abandoned. I actually think it's a fun way to sort of tone shift the books without making them feel like a totally different universe. I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree. I, it, it is really fun to come back to the same universe. It's also fun to come back to it in a different way. So I think Beck Master made a very good choice in starting this series in a different place with different characters. That said, there are all characters that I'm sure people are like, I want to know more about Malloran. I want to see Charlie get his love story. What yep. about Ingrid? What about Bert? I mean, I thought Burns and Ava... None of this Ava, feels like it's falling out of left field. No. I totally thought Burns and Ava were going to be together. And then I read this book and I was like, ooh. <laughs> I was very excited about it. I, I'm very pleased with it, though. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think part of that is that we just liked Burns and Ingrid to use the phrasing of the book jacket together a lot. <laughs> I did. I liked them together. They were a really nice couple. Do I wish that? So I have called this out in a previous episode, and it's something that I say relatively often about books, books that I like, but they start a series off. And so I say they have series starter syndrome, mm -hmm. right? Which is, they're, the books are introducing a lot of characters. They're introducing a whole series. The one I've talked about on the podcast was Cold Hearted Rake. Mm -hmm. Where, and the thing is, a lot of times you end up kind of caring about these secondary characters. You, you get really hyped for their stories. And then you kind of stop caring quite so much about the main couple because you don't, you don't get enough story of them together. Right. And I won't, I will say that I did care about Ingrid and Caleb and I really wanted their story. And I think I was just disappointed that I didn't get more. So it didn't fall into a trap where like in Cold Hearted Rake, I kind of hated them both and didn't want them to be together. I think the problem here was honestly just like the book kept getting distracted from their love story. Right. So it was a little bit hard for me as a reader to stay checked into it. Not from a level of interest. I liked them. It's not suffering from the specific syndrome you're talking about with cold-hearted rake yeah but there is literally a portion where they have this like incredibly charged moment like outside a bar mm -hmm. and the next two chapters are just clearly setting up future books with no real bearing on this one yeah we get we get three or four chapters from three or four different characters perspectives and it's it's not like watching ingrid and caleb fall in love or even relevant to the mystery in this book. It's true. They're totally just set up for future books. Right after one of the most emotionally charged moments between the two of them, it was a weird choice. It was. It did make me very excited for Ava's book. Sure, but I, I'm in a moment where I'm like, oh my God, how is Ingrid going to respond to that from Caleb? And then I don't find out for so many chapters because I got to read about Ava and Kincaid and Ghost and Obsidian. And you're like, I don't recognize some of those names. Correct. I still won't. I won't remember them like a week from now. They had no real bearing on this book. They didn't. They didn't. Okay. Like many or 
even most Beck McMaster books, she does a really amazing job with her setting. I, I really feel like I can see everything she's describing. And I feel like in books with a lot of action, it can be hard to figure out what's going on. So like Uh who's punching who, like what's happening? Where are they in the room? Where does, you know, someone slams a chair into someone. When you have fight scenes and there's a lot of stuff going on, you're like, oh, okay. But here there's a lot of action. I mean, we have them on rooftops. We have them blowing up a bridge. We have them going, infiltrating a party. We have them infiltrating an insane asylum. Like they do all this stuff. And I really... I have described her as writing in a way that's cinematic because I yes. feel like I can see it as a movie. I think I complained in an earlier book about the Nighthawks that like there was just so much going on in so many different characters that I kind of got lost in a lot of the scenes in the Nighthawk world because so much of it wasn't really all that relevant to this book. For all that I'm complaining right now about so much happening with tertiary characters, I do think I was following who people were, where they were, those sort of narrative elements, I thought that was absolutely phenomenal. The only place where she let me down a little bit in the scenery building in this book was the clothes porn. Mm, Yeah. I usually really love her clothes porn. I usually find it extremely evocative and like descriptions of fabrics. And there's very little of that in this book in a way, especially with Ingrid and Gemma, I found really disappointing. Yeah. I mean, I will say I was actually reminded of that because I, I don't think I was missing it. Until I got a moment where she described Caleb in his Nighthawks molded leather mm-hmm. armor. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that armor. And then I was like, wait a minute. What have I been missing the rest of this book? <laughs> right. Like, this is one of your talents. You are able to, like, describe what is going on and what people are wearing in a way that makes me like, yeah, I can see it. And it just it's very sparse in this one. Yeah. I will say... I thought she did a pretty good job of bringing in characters that we cared about from the London Steampunk series without making it too much of a cameo kind of like, oh, look, it's Lynch, you know, (laughs) like when Lynch appeared, I was like, oh, this makes sense that he would be here. Yeah. I mean, it's both because so many of the characters have personal relationships that are all intertwined and like functionally the Nighthawks are involved in this investigation. Not to mention how many of the characters in this secret society, oh, spies, heist, whatever, are related to people from the first books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know what? If you're going to do it, like, that's fine. We, yeah. we just read, we read the freaking Bridgertons. They're all related to each other, you know? Ew, gross. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, speaking of people being related to people, let's talk about Burns's brother. Yeah. Do you remember his name? Because I don't remember his name. Dabney? Dabney. Dabney. Sure. Let's talk about him. I thought it was well done. I'm interested to see what more of him we get Mm -hmm. in future books. Because he is gay. And clearly has a relationship budding with Jack, who is also in earlier books. And I don't, if I had to bet, I would say Beck McMaster is not about to do a romance novel, just focused on the two of them. She seems more like her gay characters will get their romance in the background. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm sure it will be like an arc through the next couple in this series, but I doubt they'll ever be in the forefront. Am I on the money? Yes, you are. So I'm a little bit, I th- I'm a little worried he's going to get a short shaft. Because like I, I have a lot of questions. I liked the relationship. I thought the uncertainty was really visceral. Yeah. I'm extremely interested to learn more in a way I don't know if I'm going to get to. Yeah. Yeah. But what we get, I really liked. Yes. I really liked their sibling relationship or non-relationship. Mm-hmm. I really liked his, he had, so Burns has these sort of dueling feelings of affection and resentment for his brother. Um, but they also have this shared passive abuse. I, I just, I really liked the way she wrote their relationship. I thought it was great. I completely agree. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention before we move on? Oh, yes, I know what you want to talk about. Maybe this could go under content warning. It's the um, the biological clock. Oh, yeah, no, that's going under content warning. All right, let's move on to content warning then. I mean, no, actually, let's just put it here. Okay. The only other thing I'd say is uh, we all know historical romances can get a little bit like baby crazy, want a family. One of my favorite things often about the vampire werewolf sci-fi supernatural genre is like often procreation is off the table due to, you know, genetic impossibility and where it's not off the table, it's not a priority. Seeing all of the vampires from the first books have all these babies running around, having Rosa so desperately want babies to have ultimately the conflict of this book boil down to Caleb never saw himself as a husband and a father, but now he does. It's like, okay, you're fighting a vampire army. I find that so much more interesting than whatever your uterus is doing. (laughs) Well, I know the most annoying thing about it is that, so this was less Ingrid wanting to have a baby and more Burns thinking maybe someday she would want a baby. That's also true. (laughs) So it's just a little bit like... The husband and father, think about how I grew up, which is, look, totally a fair assessment but they never even talked about it you know no but also i'm just putting this isn't offensive this is my i think i almost threw the book at the end when she thinks burns has only ever told her he loves her like three times Mm -hmm. but it's all the more valuable for how rarely he says it because she knows it's true it's like okay if you know he loves you he could tell you a hundred times or one time and it should be true every time it's true every time like, why are you romanticizing time. his emotional distance? Like, yeah, honey. I mean, to to be fair, this is not like this is not sinister level refusal to admit feelings. <laughs> oh, we're getting there later, Meg. <laughs> but and and she doesn't do it. And by sinister level, I also mean like recurring characters. Her characters are different. Yeah, Caleb Burns is a different person than Blade, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Blade tells Honoria that he loves her every fucking day. You know it. You know he yeah. wakes her up and is like, I love you, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. We all know it. And it's talking St- Stephanie Lawrence writes, writes one male character with different hair. Yeah, right. So I didn't love it, but I also didn't hate it because it didn't feel same, samey-samey. Didn't feel like the same thing over and over. It was just a little bit like, oh, honey, you're, like, brainwashed because he's broken. Yeah. No. I mean, yeah. 
<laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> so there was Burns, that. Okay. Burns is broken. He is broken. You are correct. He's a broken character. Yeah. And like, in fairness, yeah. His he has a traumatic is, past. He has is, reasons. It's it's fucked. So um this series always has like a billion trigger warnings just because it is so violent and so bloody and so vampiric. Yeah. Is there anything specific about this book you want to call out? Well, I I think some of the things that were tough here is that there are so in Batman Masters books, there are blue bloods who are basically like what we would think of as a, a vampire, right? Like the sexy kind. The sexy kind. And then there are vampires, which are disgusting, mindless creatures that just want to rip rip humans apart and eat their blood. And every time one of these vampires appears, it's really disgusting. Just the way she describes them, and of course the things that they do, but like the way she describes the smell, the way they look the way they act, like everything about the vampire is really disgusting. I just yeah, want to tell you, like the word, she uses the word maggot white several times to describe <laughs> what a vampire looks like. And just, it's just visceral. Like the word maggot yeah. somehow just really gets you. It gets me at least. Um, I found a couple of things in this book even more triggering than I expected given this series established standards. Mm-hmm. Um, Caleb's mother was abused by his father. Mm-hmm. And it is tough to read. There is some extremely graphic descriptions of spousal abuse. Yes. So just putting that out there. Uh, additionally, Ingrid was kidnapped as a small child and sold mm-hmm. into slavery. Yep. And the descriptions of her specifically voyage over yes. during the kidnapping are, I, I think, intense even by this book standards. Yep. So just like be, this was one of the tougher ones for me in that regard, even, even judging by this series standards. Yeah. And then again, this is the series whenever you, in this series specifically, whenever you have a vampire fall in love with anyone else, there's an element of blood play in the sex because these vampires, they don't, they don't just bite you and suck your blood like their teeth aren't sharp so they have to use razors to actually cut you and suck your blood it's not and it's great it's yeah i mean i don't love it I, <laughs> I i don't personally find it super sexy i also don't find it like a turnoff either i don't hate reading about it but it does not make the sex scene sexier for me yeah i'm kind of Gotten a little numb to it. <laughs> like, there's talking I, sex. He's like, I really want to drink you. Also, you're going to come real hard if you let me. And she's like, yeah. And I'm just sort of like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. so inured at this point to just how grossly violent it is. that, like, I okay, whatever. Well, it doesn't actually, it doesn't like turn me off and I don't think it's disgusting and I don't think it's like super fetishy either, although I could be wrong, you know. It wasn't in this book. I think it has been before. Yeah, but I will say it it detracts a little bit from the sexiness, moving on to our next review category, simply because 
so vampires not only do they like suck your blood when they have sex and it's overtly sexual but their saliva turns you on yeah so he's like you're gonna come from me sucking your blood and i'm just like well like that's just not sexy because it's like (laughs) you know like you you see what i mean well, I mean, clearly, but we have a podcast where we just agree with each other a lot, so. <laughs> right. But, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that it's a turnoff. I'm just saying if I want to read something that's going to turn me on, someone sucking on my neck is not going to do it for me. That's what I mean. Especially if the intention is to drink you. Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> but what I'm really saying is, like, there's no... You always talk about how you want to know where their hands are. Yeah. It doesn't matter where his hands are because if his if he's sucking on her blood, then she's going to come. That's true. That's how, what I mean. Meg, you're totally right. <laughs> That's my issue with it. It's not the actual blood sucking. It's that it's not sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a problem with the fact that it's gross and not sexy. <laughs> so um, well, I can, we're reviewing a vampire book. <laughs> What do we expect? So Beck McMaster can write extremely hot sex. In this book, there was so much going on. There were really only two sex scenes. Yeah, it was a little bit like, okay. And the first one was very hot, I thought. Yeah. So basically, he's doing these challenges to win her, right? And he completes one of the challenges. And she's basically like, okay, I'll let you off the hook. I know I said you could just kiss me, but let's just fuck, okay? And he's like, no, no, I don't, I can't break my challenge, but I will make you come, right? He's just like, um, I'm sorry. I'm realizing now that if we do this, you're going to think it's just a fuck. And I have in this moment decided it's not. Oh, God, I love it. So I'm going to eat you out. Yeah, and And more. I was, you know what? Good apology there for backing out, sir. Right. That you know, it was it was very hot. I really liked that scene. Yeah, the me too. Other, yeah. The other ones were, you know, blood sucking, like fucking up against the wall, but also sucking your blood. I think the only uh, in the ending, both between the plot resolution and their sex scenes, mm-hmm. it was a little bit more focused on what's to come later in the series than the two of them. Mm-hmm. I think they're yeah. great. I think they got the shaft a little bit. I agree. And not in a sexy way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want this to sound like I wasn't into Burns and Ingrid because I totally was. This book just had so much else going on that it didn't really feel like a book about them sometimes. Yeah. I I think the rest of the series improves simply because there's not so much set up for the okay. rest of the series. I mean, we're obviously going to read it. Oh, no, we're not stopping. Probably ever. You know, as long as, to be clear. Keeps, is she, as long as she keeps writing stuff, we're going to keep reading it. it because... We love the absurdity, and this leans in in a really well-done way. Exactly. Well, I think we've exhausted this book. So we will be I want to make you. some sort of pun about not the only thing that's exhausted, but I'm too tired. 
rate, review, subscribe, and check us out. We're on the internet. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>